talk about first who we are so Catherine would you like to go first I would love to go first I'm Catherine similarly to Holland and a second year PhD student at uh, Peabody College at Vanderbilt before this I worked in Chelsea Massachusetts which is a little city outside of Boston and I was a, a math teacher for middle school, seventh grade, and then also a math coach for the same middle school grades five through eight. Um, why did you decide to go to grad school? Mm. I decided to go to grad school because I spent a lot of my time as a coach reading research and trying to get like best practices to the teachers in my school um, through PD and coaching and stuff like that. And just kind of hit a wall and didn't feel like what I wanted was out there. And so I thought, hey, might as well create it. But you gotta go to grad school first to do that. It's totally true. Um, so my name is Holland, and yes, I'm in my second year doctoral program at Vanderbilt. My background is that I taught um, English language arts for four years in Austin, Texas before coming here. Um, before that, I had taught some freshman comp. I was a writing tutor at a community college in Austin. And when I taught ELA, I taught ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade. Um, all in the same school? Yep, all in the same school. Just kept moving me up. I moved up with the same group of kids three times just a little frustrating. <laughs> and I decided that I wanted to go back to school kind of for a similar reason in that um, I was in a lot of leadership roles as a teacher and I felt that I had the opportunity to get some really great teacher education instruction in my master's program but I felt like a lot of other teachers that I worked with didn't have those same opportunities and they wanted those opportunities um, and I feel like teacher education and professional development is really important and I wanted to be a part of um, helping provide that to teachers but also like coaching teachers and um, advocating for students. So a lot of what I look at is um, working with writing writers and writing instruction, especially writers who are from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. So like a lot of times kids that don't speak English is their first language, or write in English is their first language. Since the title of this podcast is School Spirits, we're going to have a drink Spirit. of some sort every podcast episode. So for today, we have the Jim, 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 G-Y-M Fizz. G -Y not as in Jim and Pam. Yeah, G-Y-M Fizz, <laughs> as in a gymnasium and a school. Yes. Um, but less smelly. Not gym class. Because it's called PE. Oh. Why is it called? Physical education. But instead of gym? Gym is the building. The building. Oh. Interesting. Yes. I never learned something new every podcast. You know. <laughs> uh, so in this drink is gin, lemon juice, and club soda. It, it is a bunker cocktail. 
Because we're bunkered down right now. <laughs> it definitely is. It'll keep the scurvy away. You know, it. it is pretty. It's like a lemonade. Like, if tart drinks aren't your thing, maybe add a little simple syrup. Yes. But if they are your thing, enjoy a tart lemonade on a warm spring day. Yeah, April 1st. With us. <laughs> a gym fizz. Okay. Why Holland? <laughs> I have a question for you. Yes. Why did we want to start this podcast? So I think we both mentioned earlier that we are very interested in um, teacher education and think that um, teachers... Uh, not just pre-service, also. Not just pre-service, but like in-service, yeah, ongoing, ongoing teacher education. <laughs> and um, there aren't always a lot of great opportunities for that besides the ones that are like you know, you're required to go to for your school. And I know from past experience that those professional development experiences were not always the most helpful or um, were maybe just incredibly boring and not something that you thought would be immediately useful or maybe it was just all about like classroom management. And so um, we thought we wanted to give resources to teachers, um, especially related to current research that is going on in the field that maybe teachers wouldn't have immediate access to. Do you remember how this podcast idea was born? No. Can you tell me? I can tell you. (laughs) We went to a conference in Chicago Mm -hmm. and we drove from Nashville. Yes. And on the drive home, we were very tired because we had spent the weekend not attending every session of the conference (laughs) instead with our friends and feeling frustrated by how much research and good research was out there that we saw at this conference and how as teachers we never knew about it and so we had what like eight hours in a car Mm -hmm. to talk about how frustrated we were Mm -hmm. and then we thought you know what is a really great way to get information out there podcast because I think we were listening to a podcast at the time yes we we totally were so yeah that was where the idea was born in a on a car ride back from a conference um so it was a good conference it was a good conference we didn't reply to that conference anytime soon um so the overall point and structure of the podcast is that we want to give you access to current research in the field so on Catherine's side she is going to talk more about um, math education-related topics. My background is in ELA, usually more for secondary kids. And we're going to bring up some articles that maybe you would not have access to as a classroom teacher that we, in our privilege as university students, um, have easy access to. Yes, and we're going to make sure to choose articles, even though I'm math and you're ELA. Yeah that each other will like so that no matter what you audience teachers teach you'll still enjoy listening to a podcast on your commute to and from your lovely school jobs or currently on your walk around the neighborhood (laughs) if you're not making that commute so yeah what we're going to do the structure we'll have a topic we'll have a spirit of a spirit we'll each have an article related to that topic We'll each have some time to talk about it, ask each other questions, um, and then offer some applications um, of that that article to your classroom so it's not just, here's a theory, now 
think about that for a while. Um, hopefully you could have some, um, if not immediate use, um, some potential things use to, in the future. Things to consider. Consider as you go forth. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, do you want to talk about our topic for today? I would love to talk about our topic for today. Our topic for today is positionality, which is not something that I knew about when I was in the classroom. Did you know about it? I don't know that I would have talked about it as positionality. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. So, positionality is an official word, capital P, positionality. And basically, the whole gist of it is that you, as either a researcher or just a functioning human in society or as a teacher, it's important to just think about what implicit or explicit positions that you hold in terms of your mindset, in terms of where you've come from, your beliefs, your identity, because every interaction that you make whether it's like with a person or with a text or with an article or with a TV show is informed by and informs your position. Yes, exactly. Um, when we talk about this in research, we talk about like the researcher in relation to the context. So um, this is going to affect the entire process, right? So it's going to affect everything from the questions that you're asking to the, the data that you're looking for, or maybe not looking for, but you're still kind of implicitly looking for it, to the way that you analyze it. Um, and so I think when I was a teacher, the way that I thought about this, because there's so many aspects of positionality, but the things that came to mind for me it, um, immediately are race, gender, class, I think um, sexuality, um, nationality. For me as a teacher, I was, or I am currently still a white woman. Um, <laughs> Coming from but, maybe like... Were your students white kids? No, they were not, typically, yeah. So I worked in a context where um, I came in as a middle-class white woman. My students were um, typically Latinx um, and black, and they were coming from more of a working-class community. Um, and so for me, the positionality that I came from was, was trying to think about, am I making assumptions about my students and about their work and about their families and their lives and their, their aspirations as a result of the biases that I have that are coming from my background as a woman who has benefited her entire life from white supremacy. <laughs> um, so that was kind of, I wouldn't have called it positionality at yeah. that time, but that was something that I was aware of, as I'm sure most teachers are aware of their gender. Well, I mean, hopefully we can look at the stats at some point, but most teachers in the country are white mm -hmm. and a lot of students are not. Mm -hmm. And an even larger percentage of teacher that teaches non-white students are white. Yes. White women. Specifically. White women specifically. Mm -hmm. So, not that positionality is just about race, because it absolutely is not, but I was also in that position as a white woman that taught lower middle class Latinx students, and it informed my decisions every day. Mm -hmm. um, I think another big part of positionality where I taught um, was my position as a U.S. citizen who um, was a native English speaker. 
and a lot of my students were undocumented or were first-generation citizens, um, and a lot of them were emerging bilinguals or they had been labeled as long-term English learners, spoke a couple of, at least two languages at home. Um, and so even, especially from an ELA perspective, anytime that even I saw their writing, that that thinking about my positionality would inform even how I'm interpreting what I see on the page. So I think for teachers, this is really important because it informs a lot of um, how you teach, uh, what you choose to teach, um, how you decide um, what the next steps are when you notice a problem going on, even maybe why you teach and why you make the decisions that you do. So, yeah. Cool. Well, I would like to share <laughs> my article. Yes, please. I would love to hear about your article. Okay. So, my article is an article by a researcher that I adore named Dr. Irene Yoon, and she is currently at the University of Utah. Her, if you look up her, like, little Utah bio, I guess not little, it's pretty long, actually, because she's done a, a lot of amazing stuff, but she works to study the dignity and belonging for students of color and their teachers in racially diverse schools. Um, and she explicitly explores dynamics of race, class, gender, and ability in humanizing school systems and culture. So she likes to look at like schools as a system, schools as like, you know, analysis, not necessarily just like students learning or teachers. Um, okay. So the article she's, has written a ton. The article I chose that I think was particularly applicable to our positionality topic is called Hauntings of a Korean American Woman Researcher in the Field. And it was published in the International Journal of Qualitative Studies and Education, um, I think in 2019. Yeah, in 2019, if you want to find it. Um, and so a little background the Korean American woman researcher is Dr. Yoon. So this is, yes, that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> so this is her writing, um, an autoethnography basically, okay. uh, where she, by autoethnography, I mean like she took, she was in these like classrooms and had these experiences. And then this is her writing about her experience as a researcher. Okay. So, I chose this article because one of the things that she points out in it is that positionality is often discussed and problematized in terms of like this binary insider outsider mm -hmm. um, where like I have to state my position when I study Latinx students because I'm a white woman. So I need to like let people know that I like an outsider studying these students or uh, I state my position is a white woman studying white people so that people know um, and so it's often discussing these like binary and that's like why you have to put it generally. But she says that her own experiences kind of overturn this binary assumption um, that an outsider always represents a dominant perspective or that participants in justice oriented research are always members of a marginalized community. And so she's trying to really talk about like, like disrupt this idea that 
there's like an outsider insider and one has to be like dominant and one Mm -hmm. has to be marginalized. Um, Her own experiences are much more fluid than that. And so I thought that this article would be interesting to talk about, to kind of introduce us to that idea. So I will give you a summary. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. Interesting. So she, this was uh, data taken from a long time. It's not just one project. So she had all of these beautiful excerpts from like her field notes and reflections being in the field over time. And so this is, I would say, instead of like one group of students that is like featured in this, this is featuring her experiences. Um, And so she... Her position in this paper is that being a Korean woman is haunted by micro and other aggressions by very particular narratives, histories, and stereotypes. And so whether or not perpetrators of these aggressions are aware of the histories, they were born from historical relations. So she talks a lot about like the Korean War and Mm. how she is haunted by her not her own experiences, but, like, her parents' experiences, grandparents' experiences, the impact of the Korean War on America, um, especially because she goes into predominantly white European spaces going to schools. And she's in Utah. Oh, yeah. So, um, okay, so she theorizes with this, like, amazing cross theory that, like, I haven't seen in research before. Um, So she theorizes with a framework of hauntings and ghosts. My friend recently presented at LRA about uh-huh. using a hauntings framework. Yeah. And I was like, I love this. Yes. Let me add this. So yeah. I want to look at that more. Later. Yes. Well, I think it's just, I think what it does is it takes away the like snapshot idea of positionality. So like, it's not like this is my position in this moment. It like recognizes that positionality is something that like grows over time even before you're born Mm -hmm. like there there are systems and structures in place in in this country that have informed your position today yes exactly cool so um the way she talks about hauntings she defines hauntings as an affective condition of feeling and sensing something that is not empirically present or observable it is intertwined with history and power and then she talks about ghosts She says, a ghost haunts by returning from the past, populating absences, gaps, and silences, and are absent beings that make their presence felt. Okay, so now try to think about that, like, in the context of a school. What do you think about? I I was trying to think, like, in the context of a school where I taught, and here's what's interesting. Um, So I think back in in the 60s and 70s, this high school was predominantly white, and you can see that when alumni would come back for, like, homecoming games. It would be, like, all these old white people. And now, because of the movement of gentrification from the city out, like, pushing um, families of color further and further outside of the city because of cost, the, the demographics of the school have shifted dramatically. However, I would say the administration that's there, and I think some of the way that those school spaces are continue to be treated are like haunted by that past of like so the ghost in your school is like the ghost of like the white demographic yes that like won't die yes 
Exactly. That it's still there. And you can see it on the pictures. On, like, they have, like, homecoming kings and queens past. And it's, like, white, 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 black. Like, it's mm-hmm. this stark change that you start noticing happening. And even in the way that um, alumni kind of interact with students in those spaces and treat them, um, I think, yeah, I'd never thought about it in that way before. That's fascinating. Love that. Okay, so I will give you a quote that really jumped out at me. Okay, are you ready for it? Mm-hmm. Quote, thinking through haunting will allow ghosts to enrich community strength, mm-hmm. to reframe and recenter marginalized and colonized histories, and to support us in our collective and individual paths to humanization. End quote. So, like, in this way, the, the ghosts are positive. Yeah, so okay. ghosts can be positive or negative, and I'm not sure she would say, like, positive or negative necessarily in those, like, specific words. Because I don't yeah. think she considers it a bad. binary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think that she... Okay, so she talks about this in the context of a reaction with a Chinese student that is in the school. Um, and so it's one of the few ones that she talks about in the article. And she says that... We were collectively haunted by the perhaps unconscious knowledge that we were in the U.S. as a result of broader geopolitical movements and power plays. But acknowledging them, we found them to be points of connection and comfort. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, like, thinking about your school, what ghosts might haunt your students that haunt them all that could form some sort of like community that's important for people to recognize and how could like how are you not privy to that and why is that important to recognize that you aren't privy to that I think they had a lot of pride in shared cultural traditions Mm -hmm. so like a majority of my students were um, Mexican-American and even just like the language like this the slang um, that they could bring into school and talk to each other um, in, like, this kind of mashup of Spanish and English and, mm-hmm. and translanguaging movement that they had, I think, was, like, a haunting that was, like, more of a celebratory thing. This, like, yeah, these shared cultural touchstones that they brought with them, despite, like, having been displaced mm-hmm. from the city to, yeah. like, more outside edges. Totally. Yeah. Okay, so I think what I want to take away from this article in terms of teachers is that ghosts and hauntings are one way to think about the experiences of the people in the institutions that you work with. Yeah. And that those experiences shouldn't be and can't be limited to the lived experiences of your students, the histories of those experiences go way farther back. And I think that if you start thinking about that, it will help teachers to, even if you don't like make adjustments to your teaching, just recognize and act accordingly in terms of your implicit and explicit biases and relationships with your students. 
Yeah, I feel like what you're getting at is kind of what I'm going to get to by the end of um, my article because you're talking about. Like we planned this. It's perfect because you're because I the way that you're conceptualizing hauntings is talking is is to me like systems of oppression, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's ultimately like what we should be thinking about in classrooms instead of like what what our tendency is as people is we want to like narrow everything down to the individual, right? Right. When it'd be like, but this one student in this one class, but it kind of, it, it like neglects what you're talking about of, of these yeah. contexts that each person comes in with. We have to think of them more as the collective, like what are these systems that are at yeah. play that are, like you said earlier, have been following kids before they were even born. Yeah. How did, how is that playing out in the classroom? That's yeah. beautiful. I love that. Oh, that's great. Well, Holland, I think that was, whether intentional or not, a perfect segue (laughs) into your article. Yeah. Okay. So the article that I picked was written by Dr. Richard Milner, who is currently a professor at Vanderbilt University. (gasps) Turns out he is. Um, So I think he's been the editor of Urban Education, this journal um, that's a pretty Mm -hmm. big... Um, educational journal for a long time because I remember like looking up that journal when I was doing um, my teacher certification stuff anyway um, so Dr. Milner he has written he wrote this piece called race culture and research repositionality working through danger seen unseen and unforeseen and this was published in um, educational researcher back in 2007 so I think it's been pretty highly cited yeah so I chose this article because even though it's about educational researchers, I think that teachers are always doing research uh, in their classes, right? Like that's what you do on a daily basis as a teacher. You're asking questions about what's going on. You're constantly gathering data. And I'm not talking about just test data, but you're like noticing what's happening in the classroom and gathering data. Mm -hmm. Um, You're making guesses as to why, what's going on. And so I think it's important because teachers are researchers, mm-hmm. that teachers are aware of their positionality because they might be unintentionally making moves that are discriminating against some of their students. And I'm not saying that, like, I, I don't, I truly don't believe in my in my heart that teachers are at their jobs to, like, be awful people, right? Like, they're not there to, like, nope. uh, berate students or, like, no talk down to them. But I think that they're, uh, being aware of your positionality maybe helps you see some of these um, unintentional missteps that you might be making or maybe just, like, help you rethink from a different vantage point. I also think that in the wake of coronavirus right now that teachers are still researchers, maybe even more so because Mm -hmm. they're, like, on this new frontier. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they, they are the people that are doing the active research because researchers haven't gone in the field yet. It's like well, it's a can't. new field. Yeah. yeah. The teachers the teachers are the ones in the field yes. right now. And so they the are constantly can't. like trying out a new design, like getting feedback and like analyzing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think this applies not just to like relational work that teachers do, but um, not that online learning isn't relational work. It absolutely is. But I think like yeah. taking that in-person experience away, it's still... Yeah, exactly. So just just a really quick summary of um, Dr. Milner's article. So basically, his point is that when researchers aren't aware of their positions in the world, they might make dangerous assumptions 
about others based on their positions, mm-hmm. right? So, like, for example, um, if you're a white middle-class teacher, you might have been raised with this idea that it's, like, weird to talk about race. Or, like, maybe you want to pretend that race doesn't affect what happens at schools because it's uncomfortable and you feel like... Basically, have you seen Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu? Oh, my gosh, I started watching it last night. It's... Ba- that's... Oh, my gosh, Elise Witherspoon, she, she's, yes. like, not talking about... At the dinner table. Yes. 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 And her kids try to correct her and tell her that you can call people black. And she says, no, we need to call them African-Americans. Yeah. And she says it in a super white middle class. Yeah. Highly okay. recommend. I need to finish yes. watching it. Okay. So it's like, it's like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think, I think that perfectly captures what happens a lot. Yes. So, but if you're not talking about these things or you're pretending that these kind of sociocultural identities that you recognize uh-huh. if they, we pretend that they don't exist what do you mean by sociocultural identities so I mean any kind of um I think any kind of social identity the way that you present yourself to the world or the way that you're perceived by others in the world so like there's like race class gender sexuality but I think there's also like geographic location there's mm-hmm. religion there's like uh, nationality I think there's even just body right like the way like ability like you are a yoga person yeah well i don't know that's <laughs> my sociocultural marker but maybe i guess there's so many it's a parts. cultural marker yeah there's so many parts to one's identity um that it can be dangerous when we don't acknowledge that that um is how we're seeing the world yeah so what I, as i was saying like um if we were pretending that this stuff doesn't exist it can lead to some dangerous consequences so we may be blaming students or families for problems that are really due to when we have these ideas of what is the norm, right? Mm-hmm. So we typically, in the United States, we place whiteness as the norm. We place yeah. white middle-class norms as that is what we're all striving for. Not just in the United States, but in, like, exponentially in yes. school systems. True, true, true. Yeah, all over. Dr. Milner notes that there are seen, unseen, and unforeseen dangers in not recognizing your positionality. Okay. So for like, for example, a scene danger. So he talks about like policy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if we're looking at policy, let's say um, if we're looking at kids who are getting referred a lot. So a scene danger, if we pretend that race doesn't exist when we're talking about referrals, is that um, the people blame students. Like they're getting referred for discipline because... Yeah. It's their fault, right? An unseen danger is that, like, maybe the, the teacher voices aren't included in that. And then maybe, like, an unforeseen danger, something you didn't even think about when not including race um, in policy, is that um, you continue to have these same policies that lead to students of color being being suspended at rates that are higher than others. So the students. difference between unseen and unforeseen is that unseen dangers you you know that they're there. They just aren't, like, presenting themselves in, like, a data set or something. Yes. And unforeseen are dangers that, like, you might not even at the time recognize. Yeah. So he says, like, unseen are those that are, that are like, implicit or invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then unforeseen are those that are, like, you didn't even know that that would happen. Got it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he has some steps that maybe not steps but recommendations for recommendations. how to make sure that you're being aware of your positionality so like i recommend this cocktail yeah 
first of all, you have to research yourself, right? You like you have to be aware, like, what are all mm-hmm. of these um, identities that I claim for myself or that even they so have been haunting me, right? So I think for first and foremost for for white teachers, it's like how does my whiteness contribute to my positionality? How does white supremacy afford me privileges um, mm-hmm. in all parts of my life that um, are affecting the way that I'm doing things in the classroom? And I think, too, for math teachers, specifically women math teachers, mm. most teachers are women, but most people that go into STEM fields, including math teaching, are men. Mm. And so I think it's really important to recognize, like, what are the hauntings of being in a STEM field? Mm-hmm. That are even affecting you in ways that you that didn't. are affecting you in ways that you didn't even think, think about. Yeah, yeah. Like even if you had good experiences, how are you treating the boys versus the girls in your math class? Like, what are the ways? Or that how you're are you trying to, to relate to their experiences? Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. how are you treating your colleagues? Like, what what position are you coming into conversations with your colleagues in? Um, yeah. Well, so so that that there's research in yourself, and then what you were kind of saying is. Um, researching yourself in relation to others Mm. so I love that distinction like so what are the cultural and racial heritages of your students like how do you know how do students define themselves how would they speak about themselves I think that's something that we don't ask students a lot Mm -hmm. like we feel like it's uncomfortable to ask them um but I think that if you ask students about how they saw themselves you would find some really interesting answers Mm -hmm. I know that like when I interviewed former students last summer um even just the way that they talked about themselves uh racially was so varied and so interesting that it really informed me and like how I was making these assumptions about how they would define themselves racially um and ethnically so so there's so okay researching yourself researching yourself in relation to others reflection that involves your participants so like not just oh I'm reflecting on the moves that I'm making it's also like I'm reflecting on the moves that I'm making and maybe like I'm involving students in that reflection process um so I mean I think this might be difficult for maybe elementary students but I think Mm -hmm. that when it comes to secondary students you could even involve them in this kind of like how do you think that the way that you see the world affects what you do in this class. I love that. Yeah. I, I know when I when I was a teacher, we did a little critical literacy unit where, te- where students did their own research projects. Um, and so then interrogating, like, what are the questions that you're asking? Because maybe you don't feel comfortable asking other questions in this class, right? Um, I think in math, too, and in other sciences, once you get to the secondary level, a lot of students don't find value in those classes Hmm. because of how they see themselves in the world. They don't see like high level calc or whatever as being useful to them and like whatever job they imagine themselves having. And so I think having those conversations about why that might be true or what about math is useful Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is really important. Yeah. The, the last part of this was what you mentioned at the end of, of your article mm-hmm. that he says um, shifting from the self to the system. So, like, you have to think not just about yourself, but you're thinking 
on these like historical, yes. political, social, yes. economic, racial, the, these huge scales that, as you said, are have have affected you and the, the rest of the people in your classroom for way before all of you were born. Um, yeah, just thinking about the history in the United States of, uh, of slavery that continues yes. to affect the way that we operate on a, on a daily basis, especially in the classroom, totally. um, I think is something to, to consider. And the more recent history of immigration laws. Oh, oh yeah, for sure. English only laws. Mm-hmm. I, even thinking about like who's, who gets classified as being a special education student, um, oh what, what is ability, yep. uh, who gets classified as gifted, so, so many, so many issues. Like I said, I, I think as far as application to the classroom, I think that this, this is an ongoing kind of um, reflective, reflexive process yeah. um, for teachers throughout the school year, thinking about who you are in relation to your students, who your students say that they are, doing some reflection together and thinking about those broader systems that I think can affect even when you're planning the year. Um, well, I was going to say, I think the reason we chose this for our very first episode was because we hope that if you have heard this, that as we continue to do different topics and give you different resources or different access to research, that you continually interrogate your positionality as you take in that new information and then disseminate it to your students. Yes. And this is not comfortable. Like, it's uncomfortable. I never feel comfortable doing this. Um, I feel like I'm always questioning myself. (laughs) Um, And, like, what are my intentions here? Like, what, what am I trying to accomplish? Or, like, what... What am I not considering about um, maybe the, the the students or the teachers that I'm working with? Um, well, it can feel overwhelming. I think because we and teachers are situated in a really huge institution yes. that's out of our control, mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. influenced by histories and power, oppression, and and so I think it's like I think what a good message to be would be to like don't put all of that weight of the institution on your shoulders. That's not what we're trying to say. Like you did not build the schools that you're in. Um, But also just do your best to not contribute to the system. I think that's the point of this, right? It's like you don't want to, you want to be aware of it. So you're not unintentionally contributing to those systems of oppression. But I think all that we can ask people is just do their best. Yeah. So especially right now, especially right now. All right, Colin, my drink is empty, so we need more. Oh, my God. I was so slow. So our next episode, we are going to shift to thinking about some articles about online learning. Why did we choose that topic, Colin? I mean, (laughs) I wanted to say coronavirus in, in like, Cardi B's. Um, Yes. Coronavirus, but I'm not Cardi B's. I can't do it that way. Too late for that. So, yeah, we are going to – Online learning is not a thing that I'm familiar with. Obviously, we're getting way more familiar with Zoom um, for our own classes. Yeah. But yeah. And I might even argue, like, we haven't dug into what we're going to do next episode. So we said online learning because that's, like, the buzzword going around in the media right now. But 
I also think we might just talk about like online relationship building or online communication because let's be real, like 15,000 kids are missing from online learning in LA public schools alone right now. And so to even imagine that learning is taking place seems silly. Well, there's learning taking place. But maybe not. Maybe not online. The, the online. It's not, maybe it's not happening online and that's okay. So okay. anyway. If you'd like to ask questions about the topics or articles covered in this episode or suggest topics for future episodes, you can send us an email at questions at schoolspiritspodcast.com. Or follow us on Twitter at schoolspirits underscore. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>